This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Hey, everyone. If you like this podcast, go behind the paywall to get privileged access to the smartest minds in finance. Visit realvision.com slash rvpod and use the promo code podcast10. That's podcast10 to get 10% off our essential membership for the first year. Join the Real Vision community and learn how to become a better investor. And now to the top analysis of today's markets. What does AI mean for jobs and your portfolio? Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Extended Daily Briefing. With me today is Joe Chow, founder and partner of Millennia Capital. Hi, Joe. It's great to see you. Hi, Maggie. Thanks for having me. How are you? So you've been on Real Vision before, but this is your first time on the Daily Briefing here at the close. So why don't you start with a, a little intro? You know, tell us a little bit about Millennia. You were an economist at the Fed and then made the jump to VC, which is interesting. Yeah, well, so my name is Joe, I'm the founder and uh, partner at Millennia Capital. It's a, uh, it's a New York-based venture capital and a growth equity fund, private markets. And we invest mostly in private markets, in AI, software, fintech. Some of the investment, some of the companies we've invested in include, have gone public, include SoFi, Robinhood, um, uh, Airbnb, and some of the companies that are so private in our portfolio include companies like SpaceX. We just added um, something in, in AI, which I can go in detail we're doing a lot in gender of AI. Uh, before making the jump to venture, I was uh, I was a macroeconomist uh, by training. Um, started my career um, at the Fed uh, in DC, and also worked spent some time at the Treasury and the IMF. This is amazing. Um, so you understand the plumbing, which is super important. Yeah, not only in terms of just like um, you know motivations, political to policy to regulatory, and the, the intertwined effects between monetary policy and banking supervision, mm -hmm. but also just fiscal debt. Um, so I spent years there working through QE 1, 2, and 3 and taper in the last cycle, and then decided I really wanted to put that knowledge to use. And so, you know, in private markets, private markets move very slowly. And so sometimes you can, if you know where macro is going, you can generate, you can look for inefficiencies uh, and exploit that to kind of generate alpha. Um, and so that's my whole thesis behind this fund. I love it. And this week sort of touches on all of those skill sets. It was a jam-packed week. You know, we had everything from the Fed. We've got a rolling bank crisis or certainly bank strains. We had an employment report and, of course, AI, which is on all of our minds. So I want to I sort of walk through the macro first because I think it's important to kind of set that table before we dive into some of the work that you're doing in AI. Um, if you are – so this is the extended daily briefing, as you all know. So if you are not a member – uh, hit the QR code and jump on. There's all kinds of trials always so that you can participate in the whole conversation um, because we will sort of switch over at the half hour. And as usual, get those questions in. You can put them in the chat. You know what to do. So let's let's sort of start with today's news. And we, you know, we had a U.S. jobs number stronger than expected. U.S. unemployment fell back to multi-decade low, right? 3.4%. We saw U.S. Treasury yields jump, but so did stocks. A lot of people are kind of looking at that stock reaction as sort of interesting. When you're looking at the labor market and what's happening right now uh, in the equity and treasury markets, what are you thinking about? 
Yeah, so today's market reaction is not a surprise. Um, I would say you can, if you ask what are some of the, what are the top two reasons stock went up, what, 2% today on the NASDAQ? And um, it is, there was probably two, two main drivers. One was Apple's earnings came in better than expected, and Apple has like a larger weight on the index. But for the, I think the other reason is that market participants feel much better about the path of Fed policy ahead over the next three to six of nine months. And that has two consequences. One is it increases confidence, uh, investor confidence uh, of what, and clarity on what to expect coming up. And the second thing is, you know, the Fed yeah, this week has set, said, you know, very likely that this is, you know, this week was probably the, the, the last hike. Maybe there's another one, maybe, you know, maybe, but at least what, what, what the market is taking away is that we're probably done with rate hikes for this cycle. And if rate hikes have already uh, uh, kind of a peak, that means you can really forecast out what the market is going to look like from a valuation and multiples perspective in the next six, 12 months. And that allows, whether it's a private equity fund, a VC fund, or an allocator to really put that number into their model and mm. begin to make, to begin to make plans for investments in the next you know year or beyond. So a lot of people, once the Fed is done, people can jump back into the system and be like, you know, we're going to start making moves. So I think you're going to see a lot of that coming in the coming uh, weeks and months. Interesting. So it's clarity. You have clarity, at least, finally. So what do you, so probably done, maybe on hold, but the maybe. market's pricing in easing. They're, they're pricing in, no. Yeah, rate, rate cuts. Wrong. You think that's wrong? That's wrong. That's absolutely wrong. Um, unless something crazy, exogenous, black swan events that could happen. Obviously, there's things that, that could happen you know, um, let's sure. call it, you know, things that you don't expect. And, and that would have a huge damage on the economy. It's very unlikely they will uh, decrease the rates. My, my guess, my baseline is they'll probably hold the rates, the rate flat for nine to 12 months and probably begin cutting next year at this time. That's, yeah. I think it's baseline. Why is that? For a couple of reasons. Um, they really want to make sure, they really want to see inflation go down. The, the, the way to really think about it is, and the, the easiest analogy is, and we've all gone through this is, you know, in, you know, sometimes a doc, the Fed is like a doctor and the economy is like a patient and the doctor wants to give the patient a full dose of the antibiotics because you want to make sure all the pains go away. Because sometimes, you know, like I've been in this, in this situation where I've stopped taking my meds and my fever comes back stronger. So by the same analogy, the Fed wants to give this full dose, finish your 30 days of medicine, 15 days, you know, and, and make sure the, 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 the symptoms go away before they will ease you off the meds. So by the same token, the Fed is going to keep rates high at this level, and they won't easily back off until they see all the inflations have come down. And so, and they rather risk kind of a recession than to, you know, come off easy and let the inflation go back. So that is what they've been saying, and that what I think is most likely going to happen absent some sort of black swan event. Wow. So, do you think that they care more about inflation than they do about? I don't want to say the banking sector because it, that's that's just probably too black and white. But is inflation the top <clears throat> priority? That's the impression that Jay Powell left everyone with this week. Absolutely, and, and I think it's very sometimes difficult for non-Fed, um, you know, officials or staffers to to understand that the way the Fed views the markets and the economy is that the Fed wants to generate a certain economic outcome and the financial markets is just a tool to, to accomplish that. So sometimes uh, folks feel like the bank sector's assets are down, but 
but the Fed's not working at that. That's not, that's like a third objective. So the Fed's dual mandate is price stability, which is inflation and unemployment rate. Now unemployment is good. Inflation is too high. They got to get those two things down. Uh, they got to get inflation down, unemployment to, to keep it down. But you know, if it fills up a little bit, that's okay. It's a balance. But financial stability, which is the term they use for what the markets are behaving too well, although banks are going down, um, that's always, that's never, that's not, that's never going to make it into the first and the second uh, objective unless something crazy happens. And that's because those two objectives are managed by Congress. Financial stability is not. So what that really means is they view financial markets, the financial system as a way, as a means to an end. And the end is mm -hmm. economic stability. And so, and so of course, they will, they will tolerate the pains of a little, you know, a few, of a few banks kind of uh, going through stress. But I think they, I think they did make a comment. I think that the, the FMC uh, did make a comment, did make comments. And I think this has been communicated that um, when there's systemic risk, like in OA, that's when financial stability might even be approach the importance of the other two objectives. And that's when they really will give more weight to financial stability. And so what does that mean? Systemic, mean, systemic risk means uh, the whole financial sector is, is undergoing stress. And, and that, like in the way right now, yes, there's banks going, going under, uh, there's what three now, four now, uh, but that is not introducing systemic risk. Uh, that's just idiosyncratic company by company risk. Uh, and so that is why they're still willing to tolerate some pains in order to cure inflation. It's so interesting you say that. It really echoes something we heard today. Uh, Michael Cow was on with Andreas uh, Senna Larson earlier on uh, the platform for a deep dive on macro. And Michael, like you, I think, is, is of the opinion that this is not a larger systemic issue. Let's have a listen to that clip and then we'll talk on the other side. I really think the unfortunate march to bigger and bigger money centers is going to continue. I don't think that's necessarily a good thing for a country, but I, I, I kind of see it as almost inevitable. But I, I, I think that that's, it's, it's, it's very, this, situ, this current banking crisis is night and day from 2008. I just do not think that this is anywhere close to the systemic concerns that we saw in 2008. And so I believe that they will, they, meaning the, the powers that be, the Fed, the Treasury, the FDIC, um, if, if this does metastasize further and starts affecting some of the larger regionals, they will find a way to ring fence uh, it again, just like they did with the BTFP facility. Mm. Um, so I, I, I don't think this is, I think we're always, we're, it's always tempting to fight last year's or you know yesteryear's battle, and I'm I'm frankly more concerned about a blow up in the shadow banking uh, sector. Hey everyone, we're going to take a quick break right now to hear a word from our partners. We'll be right back with more of the day's top analysis on the Real Vision Daily Briefing. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. 
And that full interview is available on our website. Just scan the QR code to access. Uh, it was a really fascinating conversation. They talked a lot about uh, the macro environment layered over uh, geopolitics and China in particular. Some really interesting thoughts on that. So be sure to check it out. Um, so, Joe, you were nodding your head. Yes, you do not think this is systemic right now, correct? Not yet. It could become systemic later, but as of right now, um, um, it, it's not systemic. It's more regional. Uh, it's more uh, idiosyncratic, idiosyncratic. Now, if more banks kind of, you know, get into trouble um, on aggregate, they can introduce some sort of systemic risk. Uh, but by systemic risk, the Fed is really thinking about the largest financial institutions that are uh, de designated by the U.S. Treasury Department as CFI, so systemic important financial institutions. <laughs> it's a mouthful, but there's uh, uh, you know a dozen or so of those financial organizations that are uh, these. Uh, doesn't to be, you know, to be the fail or C fee. Um, yeah. So that's what they're saying. That's that's their definition. Now, if a lot of smaller banks that may add up to the size of one of those become in trouble, uh, get into trouble, well, that could obviously, you know, qualify as a as a C fee um, system. Uh, yeah. It's interesting, isn't it? Because we just had um, we just have a couple comments. Roger asking how safe is City. At some point, this is a confidence, you know, issue, isn't it? Especially when you're talking about. I mean, our viewers happen to be very well informed, many of them, but you're talking about the broad general public who starts to see these headlines. And G, uh, making another really good point, it took a while to acknowledge the contagion back in 2007. Brian, I think you have the tweet that Rao put out. And I just want to pull that up if we can too. I don't know if you all saw Rao Powell um, tweeted out, typical timeline of a banking crisis, always the same. It's one bad apple. Well, maybe it's a few. Banks remain strong. It's the evil short sellers. We're considering a ban. Okay, now we're banning. Oh, it seems it didn't work. Cut rates, that didn't work. Panic, change regulation, you know. Um, and, and again, I don't think Raoul's saying that we're all the way at the end of that, that we are locked in one. But these things have a way of unfolding. How, how can we have confidence, Joe, that this won't turn into one of those? I think that's the fear, or is that just recency bias? Because it happened to wait, we just assume it's gonna happen that way again. There will be more banks that will undergo stress, and there will be other failures. There's 5,000 banks in the country. Um, and so um, the reason that I think the Fed, and I think, well, you know, at least in, in my own view and that shared by other uh, market participants, is that uh, the largest, you know, uh, banks in the country that account for the majority of, the, of assets, their balance sheets are incredibly strong. Now, why do we say that? They've been, uh, since the, the, the financial crisis, uh, the largest banks in the country have been going, have been undergoing uh, stress testing mandated by Dodd-Frank, uh, called CCAR, C-C-A-R. Uh, and that, that test is an annual test that each one of the major banks has to go through to basically uh, for, uh, kind of plan out what would happen to their balance sheet if, let's say, certain uh, black swan events were to happen. So, for example, the, um, the, 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 uh, for example, if GDP fell by 20% or Unemployment went down by twenty percent. You know, uh, so the the banks have been go undergoing. Each one of the major banks has been going under that test for the last ten plus years, and they've been passing by and large. And they've really strengthened their um, balance sheets. That's U.S. regulations. On the international side, uh, Basel has done similar, has implemented similar um, uh, 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 guidance and regulations. So the largest banks are much stronger. And if the largest banks are going to hold fine, then at least on the systemic level, uh, the system should be okay. Now, there's always things we don't know, and there's always you know um, risk underneath the financial system. But by and large, 
uh, the financial system will undergo stress. Uh, again, the financial system is a means to an end by the Fed to, to achieve its economic objectives. So the Fed is being so aggressive with rate hikes, the fastest in, in, you know, in, in, a, in a long time. So the financial system is no doubt going to undergo some sort of stress. Yeah. But I think by and large, the system won't, won't falter like in a way. Interesting. So how is or is there any impact in the VC world in funding and availability of credit because of these failures that we've seen, especially if we get some more? Oh, oh I mean, the impacts are uh, huge. I mean, one of the things the Fed um, uh, kind of, uh, uh, one of the Fed's sort of uh, thesis is a, is a uh, very technical term called monitor policy transmission mechanism. You can look it up, you know, you, you can read a bunch of papers, but effectively what it means is the monetary policy will transmit through the financial system into the rest of the economy over time. And so every asset class is going to be impacted. So we can start with fixed income, whether it's currencies, whether it's, you know, public uh, rates that will impact, you know, whether it's high yield or, or, or junk bonds or, or treasuries. Now, venture capital is a newer asset class. Private equity has been around for, for decades, but venture capital, you know, has been around, but it's been mostly, it, it's really grew, grew uh, much faster in the last cycle. Uh, but venture capital as an asset class is definitely impacted by the Fed. And, and here are the few ways it's impacted. One is that allocators, sovereign wealth funds, pension funds, fund of funds, they make their asset allocation decision between equities and, 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 and debt. And if right now the risk-free rate is almost is 5%, higher than 5%, and you can get private credit for 10%, well, you get those with much higher of a certainty and there's uh, lower risk. So allocators will, at the pension funds will allocate more towards like fixed income and, 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 um, uh, and, and away from equities. So allocators are not investing nearly as much in equities and mm -hmm. that will trigger down. VCs cannot raise as much money. If we can raise as much money, we're going to be less, invest less in to startups and tech companies. So that's one of the channels by which the Fed um, kind of um, pulls to, to influence uh, financial market um, allocations. Joe, do you think this means smarter investments? Because some had made the argument when money's free, it, you know, you'll give it, you'll give it to anybody. I mean, you sort of throw it all over the place, see what sticks. Um, you know, it's an exaggeration, but there, there was a concern that the valuations got crazy projects that should never have been funded, got funded. Will that result in a, will that hurt innovation, this, this situation, or will it actually sort of refine the process and maybe mean that the best project, the best new companies, the best ideas, the best new technologies get that VC money? I got a perfect example for you. Uh, as a practitioner now, my job as a, as a, as a private equity venture capital investor is to look for the most promising companies that may become the next thing. Um, and so on net, this 2021 to 2023 or 2024 episode is a healthy reset for the venture capital industry and for the financial markets. Um, and the weaker companies, the weaker funds will get washed out. The strong ones will stay. Um, two things. One is, yes, a lot of IPOs have fallen in prices and a lot of startups have gone out of business, but this is really, really different than 2001. Because in 2001, the internet was up and coming, but there weren't really business models. There weren't really revenues or gross profits or EBITDA. But if you look at tech now, if you look at companies like Snowflake, Airbnb, these are some of the most, pro uh, most promising uh, uh, companies with real competitive modes with real good youth and economics, with real revenue EBITDA. So of course they're not going away because they're staying and they will trans transform how, how we live and how we interact with the world. Second is, um, to your point, 
you know, one of the most exciting uh, innovations is AI, generative AI. And, you know, honestly, AI has been around for some time, but really since OpenAI has come out, it's really captured the public's, uh, you know, attention. And I think anyone that has played with it, you know, I think should be, you know, is probably, you know, amazed by it. I was very amazed by it. We use a person, I use it personally, we use it professionally. Even in this market, when it's been so dry, OpenAI was able to raise $10 billion. And some of its competitors, uh, like Anthropic, like Cohere, uh, there's another company called Stability AI. It's mm -hmm. text to image uh, multimodal, uh, in which we're investing in. We're investors in Stability. Um, and it, um, these companies have not had any issue raising venture capital. So what does that mean? It means that, yes, like the market for venture is down, but the most promising technologies are still getting funded. And AI is going to drive so much more innovation. It's going to display so many things. It could be as important as the internet itself. It could be as important as the steam engine or mobile. And so the best companies are having trouble fundraising. You know, OpenAI raised $10 billion and, mm -hmm. and that's a, a massive number. And traffic is raising a lot. So I think overall it's a healthy reset and the best companies will still come out ahead. We're going to take another quick break to hear a word from our partners. We'll be right back with more of the day's top analysis on the Real Vision Daily Briefing. This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Wyndham. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. Uh, I am, and I want to dive in a little deeper into that in just a moment. But but one more question, uh, Ralph saying, asking, do you foresee trouble in the private equity space? Are they going to have to mark down their portfolio company valuations, causing LP angst? Do we see failures in private equity? Yes, you you are seeing that. You know, by the same token, you know, if we look at the bank, if we look at the banking crisis right now, what's really happened is uh, when rates went up. A bank's loan portfolio's valuation also came down. It's by the same token, when rates went up, the value of the private equity portfolios ha has also come down. Now, in the the banking model is a little bit, you know, is 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 isn't the most stable business model in the world. And so, when a, a bank like SVB, you know, rates went up and their loan portfolio, their treasury portfolio, became as valuable, um, and, and that's what led to kind of one thing or another with uh, that unfolded. By the same token. Private equity, the private equity industry, the venture capital industry is, under, is, is going to undergo the same, it has been undergoing the same sort of a um, uh, uh, kind of a, a impact um, that, that, that the value of the securities in private equity venture capital is, means, uh, is worth lower now. There's a couple of things that's different about private equity. One is LPs have committed capital for a number of years. So LPs just cannot redeem within a matter of a day or an hour or a minute, like, 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 like banks uh, depositors mm. had. The second is that the private equity industry, we also recognize that rates are not going to stay this high forever. If, if, we're, if the private equity industry is underwater because valuations have come down because uh, rates have gone up, but what we also know is it, we're always in a cycle. So maybe in two to three to four years, once this, the, Fed, the Fed starts cutting, maybe in a year, most likely in a year, um, then the valuations on paper will begin to rebound. And mm -hmm. so, and so, and furthermore, the companies themselves are going to grow and that's going to improve valuation. So I think the private equity industry is going through the same, you know, the same impact that the banks saw, but the private equity industry is a little bit more 
the business model is a little bit different. That's a great point about you don't get that mobile phone, I'm pulling my money type, <laughs> you know, run that, you know, uh, virtual run, but it's real that we're seeing now. Uh, so a couple of questions around AI in the jobs report today, not specifically, but mm -hmm. um, Connor mentioning IBM has announced they're pausing hiring and looking to replace any job that can be accomplished with AI. Looks to be about 7,800 by his estimation. What could the short term look like if this trend continues? I, I think AI is going to replace a lot of jobs in the next five to 10 years. But I don't think that AI is ready for prime time yet to really play the most crucial role in our society. Mm -hmm. why, why do I say that? The technology is promising. And we can all see the different use cases. But it needs to be tested, needs to be approved, uh, and it needs, to, it, it needs to gain trust, and that's going to take time. We can see in, you know, in years' time that AI is going to do a lot of things we do, and we'll, we'll get there as a society. That's innovation. That's you know, business and that's entrepreneurship. But I don't think anyone is going to feel safe to have AI really run our economy, or run our business, run our lives yet. Yeah. So, so you know, at least I don't. So it might take years. So I don't think it's short term, but but even long term, it will. But so that's interesting because then it's about the types of jobs and. Because it doesn't mean it's not going to take jobs. It's just not running things. Well, you know, you, you, you don't need as many captains. You need a lot of rowers, you know, to make things move. At least that's the way it used to work. So uh, Randall uh, asks or comments, technology has always replaced jobs throughout history, right? So this is a new, as you mentioned, we've seen this, tractors, cod mills, stamping press, mm -hmm. forklift, yet we've always found more right. jobs. Is it different this time with AI? And I would add, is it, we're astonished by the speed of this thing, right? Like it's, it's just so fast. Are we going to be able to innovate as humans thinking about what work means, keeping pace with this technology? Because I think that's the important part, right? You know, we started this show talking about how we're at what 50 year lows in unemployment rate mm -hmm. and technology is such a big part of our life today. So, and I'm sure 20 years ago, we said the internet was gonna uh, displace everything. And look where we are. We, we're, we're trying to get unemployment rate out because, it, it, because the job market is too good. And so I, you know, I think to use that as an example, um, AI is going to displace a lot of jobs, but there will be many new jobs that will be created. And we don't know what they are, but, they, but, but I think companies and, and investors that can see and have a thesis on what that will look like will benefit really well. Um, there's, you know, we can always be creating new industries that will, um, and I'll, I'll give you an example. Um, there's an AI company called Scale.AI. It's one of the, um, I would say suppliers of AI. What that means is they're a tech startup, they're venture backed, they're like Series E, Series F. They've raised hundreds of millions of dollars. What they do is they have a, they, they label what each data point means so that you can use that to train the AI models. Mm. And so, so data labeling is becoming a new um, kind of a category of jobs. Uh, I, you know, just even with AI, there's something called a prompt engineering. Uh, and there's going to be maybe wet police. So there's going to be new jobs that will get get created. And it's, I think, up to our job as uh, venture capital investors and entrepreneurs to identify what are the new potential industries that will emerge once we, as we move into the AI age. Fascinating. Um, years ago, I did a whole series on robotics. Uh, and of course, AI is intertwined with that. And the people on the forefront of it at that time, MIT, Carnegie Mellon, mm -hmm. you know, uh, Department of Defense uh, and a lot of sort of incubators, 
uh, always like to talk about the three Ds, dangerous, dull, dirty, right? And their view, their very positive and optimistic view is that this sort of technology would eliminate the need for human beings to do those kinds of jobs, freeing everyone up to do you know, more important, more fulfilling work. But we don't really have those conversations in policy circles, do we? Or really economics. I, it's, you know, it's hard to, I think back to one of the earlier points, AI, in my opinion, and we've done a lot of research on AI, is like software squared. <laughs> and, you know, like uh, and, so, and so the reason that AI is, is developing so fast is that it's software on software. And, and so that way, that's why it's moving so fast. Um, and many jobs will get displaced. Um, and I think the next leg in the AI uh, um, kind of a, a, a development, it's going to be the regulations of AI. And I think yesterday, this week, I mean, the White House convened like the, the biggest CEOs in AI to talk about how to develop AI responsibly. So I think the government is going to do things in the US and, and, and in the US, I think there's something going on there that will um, make sure AI develops within the, bound, the boundaries of uh, ethics and, and morals. In fact, we just backed a startup that's building uh, tools to, to enable uh, AI developers to kind of com uh, comply with laws and regulations. And so, you know, I'm uh, folks are really excited about AI, but I, I you know I'm not too worried about AI kind of ruining society. I think it's um, it, it's another way of innovation. And policymakers um, want to encourage innovation because you also have to think about you know global competitiveness. You want to mm -hmm. you know, there's many problems to solve. Right? I think AI can solve a lot of problems in healthcare, and that's going to hopefully come with new 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 tools to kind of cure cancer. And so I think the benefits really outweigh the cost. Absolutely fascinating. Uh, Ralph commenting, there's a lot of hype in AI. Yeah. Is there, is there too much? I mean, is this, is, how do you, how do you balance the potential amazing breakthrough innovation with froth? Great question. And we've been doing a lot. So I'll, I'll give you tangible. So we're an investor in stability. AI is one of the top two or two, three, two, three companies that's, uh, that's developing a, a tool where you can Typing something and convert that to a, to a picture and you know a, a video. Uh, we've been trying to get into OpenAI and we just, we're still working on that. Uh, you know, um, we are working on a couple of uh, investment opportunities in a company called Anthropic, uh, they, uh, and a company called Cohere. And so there's probably a handful. There's you know five or six independent startups that are building AI tools that are in the in the race. And these are called LLMs, large language models. Think of them as like you know, as like your foundational AI that's trained that's trained to look at data and give you a response. And so, these five or six companies, how they operate is they need to train the AI on hundreds and billions of data points, and with a human supervising it. So the human gives it a response. And if you do it over a million times, the algorithm becomes so smart that it becomes like um, automated. And so there's so much going on in AI. And the valuations are expensive because the cost to train one of these models is also so high. Um, um, for example, um, you need to buy hundreds of millions, uh, millions worth of NVIDIA chips to run the, that, to run your algo on those chips because they're the only chips that, 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 that support AI development. So that's going to cost a lot. You need a huge amounts of data set uh, uh, to retrain the AI, the algo, over millions of times to get it right. And so AI is going to be so powerful, but the cost to get it up and running is also high. That is why the value, starting valuations of AI companies is high. On the mm -hmm. flip side, AI is sort of like 
think of it as a biotech investment. It costs a lot to get it up and running, but once you get it up and running by the FDA, it's, it could be all future cash, cash flow. So that is why some of the valuations for Entropic is, is $5 billion, and Coheres 2, OpenAI is 29 stability was one, you know, hopefully a, a little bit higher. Um, is these, the starting prices of these AI companies is high because the cost of getting a right is high. Now, I think there's a stat somewhere online, this is you know, publicly searchable, that OpenAI's revenue has gone from zero to $200 million in a matter of three months. Which is, and so, it's just mind boggling. I mean, it's hard to wrap your head around that. I'll, I'll give your viewers a stat. So in the pre-IPO market, there was a saying, there's a, a stat that's really used by investment bankers, by private equity funds, that it takes a software company on average eight to 10 years to go from zero to 100 million of revenue. And, and so if you look at some companies like Snowflake and Palantir, uh, some of the IPOs, it takes eight to 10 years to build a company that's making that much revenue because it takes so much to build a company. Well, OpenAI has gone from zero to 20, $200 million in, in three months. And, and Microsoft, ha and that's mostly coming from a consumer base. And, you know, if you do the math, right, if you pay $20 a month uh, over 12 months, you only need about 800,000 people to really to be making that $20 million of AR, AR. And there's millions of people who are using it that haven't paid for it. And Microsoft hasn't rolled out the product to like the, its enterprise uh, client. So what this all means is, yes, the prices are very high, but the rate at which these companies will grow into valuations will also be much faster. Amazing. And so, and so that I'm is gonna, our view. I'm, I'm going to yeah. jump in for one second. We've got some questions coming in. There's so much to, to ask about this. Um, Stability AI, uh, Raul sat down with Emot twice and was talking about, it was incredible in the space of the two interviews, how much had changed. I mean, it's, it's almost, you, you have to rewatch them. They're about an hour because it, it take it, it, there's, it's just so hard to wrap your head around the, the sort of breakthroughs. Um, if you, uh, anyone listening has not had a chance to watch those, go back and listen to them because especially now as you start to play with it, you can really start to understand what he's talking about. Absolutely amazing. Um, and we're going to say goodbye to those who have to jump. Uh, we hope you join us, hit the QR code and stay for the rest of this conversation about AI. This is such an important topic, but if you can't, um, enjoy yourself. Have a wonderful weekend. Enjoy the K Kentucky Derby if you're a horse racing fan. Um, and we'll see you on Monday. What's up, revolutionaries? Thanks for tuning in to the Real Vision Daily Briefing. For more content like this, head over to realvision.com and get unfiltered access to the very best, brightest, and biggest names in finance.